You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Do you ever have those moments where you think, gah, makes so much sense. Why didn't I think of that? For me, at least, this seems to happen all the time. But one particular occasion was back in 2016 when I came across a news story about a geothermal power plant that was just reopening. To set it up, a bit of context. I look after the product for BNF. So how we deliver the research, tools, news, and data to our users across BNF.com, the BNF mobile app, and the Bloomberg terminal. But before I moved over to this side of things, I was a BNF analyst. This was back when BNF really only covered renewables. So, in renewables, there's wind and solar, and now batteries, and the other stuff. I looked after the other stuff, mostly geothermal. So geothermal power generation isn't really realistically possible to do everywhere. But think about a place that has volcanoes or hot springs. It probably makes a lot of sense to do it there. In places it works, it's really a fantastic technology. Okay, so back to the aha moment. The plant in question was the Stillwater plant out in the desert in Nevada in the U.S. Look it up. It's owned by the Italian utility Enel, and they did something really clever. Now, in its very, very basic form, a geothermal power plant works by drawing hot water out of the earth through deep wells. Think thousands of feet down, think oil wells, but instead of oil or gas, they pull up hot water, or brine. This water then flashes to steam to run a turbine, or it heats up another working fluid that vaporizes to run the turbine. What Enel did was they put trough-shaped mirrors around the pipes carrying the hot water on its way to the power plant. And what this did was heat up the water even more, thereby boosting power output by an extra 2 megawatts, from 33 to 35 megawatts. Not a huge gain, but it makes so much sense. Why wouldn't you do that? Why didn't I think of that? To be honest, maybe I did and I forgot. I should go back and check my notes. I'm, I'm sure I thought of it. Yeah, totally. Anyway, this method of using the sun to heat up stuff, well, it's another lesser-known renewable, solar thermal. As we'll hear about in today's episode, it can take a few different shapes, and where it's possible, it's really quite cool. Today, we'll talk with BNF Head of Solar Analysis, Jenny Chase, about our latest look at this subsector of the solar industry, based on the Solar Thermal Market Outlook 2019. BNF users can get this report on BNF.com, the BNF mobile app, and BNF Go on the Bloomberg terminal. As always, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, here with Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF podcast. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Dana. We are here today to talk about solar thermal. And before we really get into the meat of the research note, can you explain to us what solar thermal generation is and how it differs from other forms of solar energy like PV? So specifically, we're going to talk about solar thermal for electricity generation. Now, solar thermal for heat is a, a whole other field. And that's also quite useful because if you want to take a shower, if you want 
to feed something into an industrial process, heat process, you can use solar thermal to increase the temperature. And bear in mind, it takes as much energy to increase the temperature of water or another fluid from 10 to 20 degrees Celsius as it does to increase it from 500 to 510 degrees Celsius. So even using low, relatively low-value, low-level heat can help. But today we're going to talk about specifically when you concentrate solar thermal into a fluid, make it really hot and run a turbine or a boiler and generate electricity from that. Generally, how do you do that? Well, there's two main surviving ways. You can either use a parabolic trough, and this is where I wish we had pictures rather than being on a podcast. You can either... Look it up, everyone. So yeah, a parabolic trough is exactly what it sounds like. It's like there are these troughs and they concentrate the sun falling on them into a pipe in the middle. And they've got that means that they've got miles of piping which contains steam or well, it's nearly always steam under high pressure and at high temperature. Or you can have a tower design where you have a big field of mirrors and they're all aligned perfectly to focus the heat onto one central boiler. That one reminds me of a magnifying glass when I'm a kid. You know, just concentrating the sun down on a piece of paper to, well, burn the paper. That's basically what you do. There's also Fresnel designs, which are mm. using flat mirrors to do the same thing, but they're quite a minority technology, so we'll, we'll probably not talk about those. Isn't this generally a minority technology, solar yeah. thermal? Yes. Solar thermal electricity generation... We got really excited about it in 2008. We thought, wow, this is cheaper than photovoltaics. And it was, but that was mainly because photovoltaics was really expensive back then. And then photovoltaics got cheap. And we've stopped talking about solar thermal so much. So the cost declines didn't come down, but it also has to do with it's only useful in very specific locations. And I think you referenced very hot locations as being particularly useful for this technology. Why is that? Well, first of all, the cost has come down. I mean, we were talking like 450 euros a megawatt hour in 2008. And we thought that was cheap. I'm mm. sorry. It, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't cheap. But now we, th- we thought it was kind of cheap because photovoltaics was really expensive. And today, some of the lowest bids are coming in at around 70 or $73 a megawatt hour. I'm a bit skeptical about those. But even our calculations suggest that it's you can do solar thermal for 100 or somewhere between 100 and 150 degrees and uh, for ref- dollars per megawatt. For reference, PV is at... What? Right. 30. Okay. So this is expensive stuff. Mm. And you can only do it somewhere that has a high amount of direct insulation because it doesn't, unlike photovoltaics, it doesn't ca- capture reflected or, um, or diffuse light. So it needs to be really sunny and the sun needs to beat down directly and not a lot of dust in the atmosphere, which is a problem. And so it, it's quite specific locations. What it does offer, though, is storage. If a couple of things. First of all, it supports the grid better than photovoltaics because there's a spinning thing. Grids like spinning things. It produces um, AC, that produce AC generation. Like actual spinning metal for everybody listening. It's uh, what frequency regulation, right? It's frequency. The, the, the proper term is frequency regulation. Okay. Yes. But basically, it's just that you've got inertia if you have yeah, yeah. spinning metal, and that means that if the grid wobbles, the metal keeps spinning at the same, much the same rate, and that makes the grid wobble less. So you talk about these really hot locations, so we, we can't have too much sand. Sand's going to get in the way, uh, but you do need a lot of heat. Where in the world are these projects being built right now? So they're being built, a lot of them in Morocco. Part of the reason for that is that the Moroccan government are 
quite forward-looking about this. And they're thinking about how they're going to decarbonise and supply their country going forward. A bunch in the United Arab Emirates. And the other thing about the Middle East and North Africa, which fits solar thermal quite well, is that they mostly have a very high peak of energy demand in the evening. And that's where solar thermal's real advantage comes in, because you can actually store energy from solar thermal. You just need something that gets really hot and stays hot, and then you can use it to to make steam to run the turbine after dark. So usually, this medium is molten salt. Salt has a really high specific heat capacity, so it stores a lot of energy when you heat it up. So you make it 500 degrees centigrade, leave it there, and then when you need the power, you use that to make steam and run the turbine. It's just just sodium chloride? It's a mixture of sodium chloride and other salts. It's just a vat of hot, It's quite a tough vat because this is... I'm sure, yeah. And it's well insulated as well. Yeah. You do not want this stuff to freeze. You especially don't want it to freeze in pipes because that's a right pain in the neck to get out. How many hours of storage are we talking about? Does this get me to the next morning or or do I need to go make sure I go to bed before I run out of electricity? You can have as much molten salt as you like. You just need enough of a solar field to heat it up. So Cerro Dominado, a plant that's being built in Chile, has 17.5 hours of storage. It's basically a baseload plant. That's pretty cool. It is kind of cool. <laughs> I've always thought of, of solar thermal. I So for everybody listening, I used to I used to look at a lot of the, the geothermal market, right? Market, I don't know. And you could argue that geothermal is a lot like solar thermal in that it's kind of like a science project. You get a lot of, oh, that's really cool moments. But you also get it peppered with like, Okay, but this is only work in certain specific places. I always used to sum up the the geothermal market by the old song, nice work if you can get it, because it works in really specific places. I am going to argue, though, that a lot of the conversations we have with analysts talk about the future of electricity and grid connection is a lot of different combinations of things and looking at things that are right for... Sure. And I get that there's probably certain technologies that have more locations that they could go in. But it is, uh, you know, just an increasingly diverse grid is what potentially we think the future holds. One of the things you point out in this research note was that solar thermal actually can really benefit from the presence of photovoltaics at the same time. Mm. So what what is the benefit? Is it economic? It's not exactly that the solar thermal benefits. It's just that photovoltaics is cheaper than solar thermal. So if you average the costs over a bigger plant, you get a lower average cost of energy. But what you can do is solar thermal has a lot of parasitic losses. You've got to pump fluid. You've got to... Um, get things started in the morning. You've got to tilt the mirrors, whether they're parabolic Mm. trough or tower and heliostat. And you can actually use photovoltaics to run that since all those things are mainly running when it's light. And then you can use a solar thermal to store your heat in a tank, which means that when the sun goes down, you can start taking that heat out. So basically, if you hybridize solar thermal with PV, you could provide the, the daytime power for the grid, but also for the parasitic losses. And then you run the solar thermal after dark. Or, well, technically, you you take out the stored energy from the solar thermal after dark and you run that turbine. And that means you can have baseload power even cheaper than if the whole thing was solar thermal. So you mentioned Morocco, you mentioned Chile. Are there other places that are looking at this? Could it pop up anywhere else? Well, Spain's done 2.3 gigawatts and stopped. Okay. Spain's actually quite marginal for sunniness. It's quite marginally sunny enough for solar thermal, for starters. And secondly, they had this big policy. They built a bunch of 50 megawatt plants that were all uh, mostly kind of the same, their parabolic trough. That that fleet is working quite well, though. It took it a long time to ramp up. But we used to think parabolic trough technology wasn't really improving, but it actually is. 
How? It's a good question. But I better think, tracking? Better... I think that it's little things like that because these plants were all built by 2014, mm-hmm. but their capacity factor actually increased up to 2017. So obviously, without totally rebuilding these plants, yeah. these companies are learning better how to operate them. Oh, and there good. haven't been like any big molten salt leaks lately. Lately? Lately. Is that, is that a thing? It's a thing. What happens when there's a molten salt leak? You get molten salt everywhere. It's not pretty. <laughs> no, I, I mean, let, see that. That, that sounds like a bummer. No, but in reality, what does that do to the plant? Is it a big cleanup? They have to shut everything down for a really long time. Um, is it hazardous? It's not that hazardous. If you're standing it is right just there. salt, but it's hugely disruptive to the plant. You have to clean it up. I, I'm pretty sure that there are rules about leaving loads and loads of salts lying around. And of course, you have to then get a new containment vessel and another bunch of molten salt. And salt is not super expensive, but it's not cheap either. You have to get a specialised one that meets your proper... The mixture is actually quite important, so you want to have a mixture that you understand the properties of. And of course, if it leaked out, you probably want to get a better thing to hold it in this time. Molten salt as a form of storage... I think sort of makes these projects unique because a lot of the time people are talking about lithium-ion batteries these days. So my question is, are lithium-ion batteries, do they have a role to play in the solar thermal space? I think they have a big role in replacing it, probably. I think photovoltaics and batteries are probably going to ultimately beat solar thermal with molten salt storage to provide baseload or day-long duration power. Molten salt... At the moment, it is slightly cheaper, I think, for the long durations, over eight hours of storage. But it's not coming down. The plants that exist, they run, and actually some of the parabolic trough plants run quite well, but they have they have problems. I think we're probably going to end up using lithium-ion more. The other thing with molten salt, interestingly, is that you don't need to use it with solar thermal. You can just heat it with um, whatever electricity you've got. I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations for this report about heating it with wind and then using it to provide district heating. Now, the problem with that is that you only cycle it probably once a year or so. And that means that the capex of putting this big molten salt plant underground is quite high if you're only going to heat it up in summer and then discharge it in winter. But if you've got wind, a lot of wind in the winter, maybe you can consider something like that. How much would it matter to lose your spinning reserve if this doesn't keep going? I'm not a grid expert, but grid experts don't seem super concerned. I think that a lot of them are suggesting that if you have batteries that are being, that are paid to provide frequency response so that they do respond on a very short time frame to the grid fluctuating, you probably don't need spinning reserve or not as much as we have. We're spending a lot of time talking about molten salt rather than solar thermal, but, uh, Are there locations where molten salt is particularly well adept and not? Because you do reference putting it with wind or other sources of technology. And I'm just wondering if there are physical barriers. Well, it's a big tank of really hot stuff. So you probably, I mean, you need quite a lot of space, you need quite a lot of insulation. You probably don't want to have it right next to somebody's house because if it does leak out, there's going to be a wave of really, really hot stuff and... (laughs) I think you want a bit of a barrier. It's terrifying. <laughs> it, it is terrifying. Yeah. Like a volcano. Yeah. I don't think there's a location, a big location barrier. You just probably don't want it in your house. Okay. So this is definitely a utility grade solution. And, but I mean, so is solar thermal. So we're talking about large projects. Is it hard to find locations for these projects that are actually physically close enough to the consumers that makes it so that the losses are minimal enough so they're, economic, they're economically viable projects? 
don't think so. I mean, there's a lot of desert in the world. So, in fact, for solar thermal, location is not a massive problem. The problem is that no one really wants to pay over $70 a megawatt hour for power. How do they deal with all of the sand and the dirt that does get in the way of the functioning of the plant? They clean them. So just a lot of water. Um, it's usually water... It can also be done dry cleaning. In fact, dry dry cleaning with, with just soft brushes or cloths can actually make more sense in very dusty environments because it's not the sand that's so much the problem. It's actually the, the fine dust that clings to the panels. And particularly in the Middle East, some of that dust, if you put water on it, it kind of turns into cement. So you want to dry clean. So this isn't robots doing this brushing. This is people? Uh, mostly at the moment it's people. But it could be robots. I think we'll have to have Mirror Brusher Appreciation Day. That sounds like a really intense job. I think it's it's not a great job. Well, you can you can do it at night, of course. So at least, in fact, you prefer to do it at night I'm sure because you would. um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so at least you're not necessarily exposed to the desert sun all day. These plants also need to be cooled at certain points, and there's wet cooling and dry cooling. What are the benefits of both? So basically, whenever you've got a turbine, it's running on heat differentials. So you need to dump the heat somehow. Wet cooling, you use water to dump the heat into, and some of that evaporates, and some and a lot of the energy that you're, a lot of the temperature that you're trying to lose, a lot of the heat, heat that you're trying to lose, is through evaporation, and that does use a fair amount of water. Um, dry cooling is when you just basically expose it to the air and let the air cool it down, which is less effective, but it doesn't use so much water. In a place where it looks like these locations are locations that don't have a lot of spare water to go around, do you see that as a and potential a high, limitation? And a high ambient temperature. Yes. Yeah. It is definitely, definitely a limitation, yes. I think nearly all the plants being built at the moment are dry cooling, so they use less than the wet cool plants. How often do you write about solar thermal as a topic? Roughly once every two years. It's a quite a slow-moving market. There's about 6.9 gigawatts installed. We're expecting about 8.6 gigawatts to be installed by 2023. And that's compared with a current photovoltaic capacity of 500 gigawatts, 600 by the end of this year. It, solar thermal, it is rumbling on. And although what we haven't talked about much is tower plants underperforming, in fact, the parabolic trough plants are doing fairly well and becoming quite a mature technology with plenty of proof that they work. So we will keep an eye on this sector. But in general, I am expecting it to lose out to photovoltaics and batteries. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.